0: Mark chapter 10, of course, after a high note, this is what I get to preach on tonight. Divine appointments, I like that, how that's put. Hey, while I'm thinking about it, while you're turning there, um, uh, talked to Zach Perkins the other day, and I know exactly where he is. He is in the dog days of summer at college. He is tired, he is weary, he is ready for classes to start or be over. Either one be fine. <laughs> and uh I tell you, we could really, really be an encouragement to him. We'll get the address and, and spread that around. Let's uh let's send him some cards. Let's send maybe a maybe a care package if you feel so inclined, a gift card or something. And would a couple of you send him a stuffed animal just to mess with him? Would you all do that please? And uh what do I do with this? I don't know, but you got some stuffed animals now, Zach. That'd be great. <laughs> okay, my wife is getting a box together, so if you want to bring stuff to her, she can take care of getting that to him. All right, so raise your hand here in case anybody doesn't know who you are. And uh, you, know, you were gone for two weeks. Some people may have forgotten. On purpose, I have hit the brakes on this subject. I just—I think it's prudent that I at no point feel rushed through this subject because we've got to get it right, doctrinally, but also in a way that, that the fewest people possible get hurt. And so this is the second of what I expect to be a three-part message on these 12 verses. And I think that's, that's, that's useful to us to do it that way. In keeping with our alliteration, we're talking about marriage and focus, but we're titling, at least we did title, Jesus' Discourse on Divorce. The question that's before us is, does the Bible allow for divorce and remarriage? And if so, what are the conditions? And you'll remember last week that we had some, some things in place to kind of be a, a guide star for us. The first one is this good christians disagree there is no way on this planet that when we're done with this section that we're going to leave here and everybody in here agree it's just not it's not going to happen and good people can disagree and it's okay it's okay i mean we all know i'm right but good people can disagree number 2 good christians have been divorced It does not make anybody a second-class citizen in life or in church, and uh, there there is no scriptural basis to treat anybody that's been through that difficulty differently than you would anybody else. It happens, and some of the finest Christians I've ever known have been through that, and that's important to remember. Number three, good Christians avoid offense. I do my best not to get offended. Now, I do from time to time. I'm human, but I try not to. Great peace of they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. So keep that in mind if you would. I want you to remember our overarching template that we're going to use for this and a lot of other issues that we deal with, and that's this. You have God's ideal, okay? You have man's real, and then you have the Christ who heals, and we used 1 John 2, verse 1 as kind of a, an example of that. It says, My um, <clears throat> little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see all three of these in that brief verse. First of all, you sin not. That's God's ideal. God's perfect will is that we don't sin. How are we doing? You see, that's God's ideal, but we live in man's real. That you sin not if any man sin. Okay. Well, what do we do then? We didn't meet God's ideal. My real is far short of that. That's where we go to the Christ who heals. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Our our danger in this study of this subject is, And really, any time we form our doctrine, is threefold. It's that we form our doctrine through our feelings. Feelings are powerful things, but they have absolutely nothing to do with doctrine. Nothing to do with what the Bible teaches. Then that we form our, our doctrine on experience. By the way, if you weren't here last week, i got scripture for all this. I'm just moving through it quickly. Our experience. Or the experience of somebody we love. And then the third thing would be anecdote or exception. Well, this person went through that and everything turned out fine for them, so, you know, it must be okay. That's just not reliable either. Only God's word should form our doctrine. I've moved away from the, the Bible being our final authority on faith and practice. I think it should be our only authority on faith and practice. Why are we involving anything else? Everything else is unreliable. And so that moves us to part two and where we are tonight. You know, 2 Timothy 3.16, marriage and focus. Marriage and focus. Mark chapter 10, verse number one. And he rose from thence, that's Jesus, and cometh into the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan, and the people resort unto him again. And as he was wont, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, is it lawful? By the way, there's a big difference between what is lawful and what is expedient. There are a whole bunch of things that may be allowed, but that doesn't mean they're best. You know? Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered or were allowed to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh, so that they are no more twain, but one flesh. Can I give you something, just a little side note here? This, this, once again, goes against our feelings. The number one people in your life should not be your children. It should be your spouse. Because the Bible does not say of your children that they're one flesh, but your spouse is. That's the Bible. Once again, I know it goes against our feelings, but that's what it says. And the only way that I can be the daddy to my kids that I ought to be is if my wife, earthly speaking, has the preeminence in my life. Best thing for a kid is when mom and daddy are what they ought to be to one another. Verse 9, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter, and he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another, committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. And so we continue our thoughts tonight in part two, Marriage in Focus. Father, I pray for... Jeff, Satan's going to try to come in and steal his joy immediately. And Lord, he has some physical needs, some personal needs, and I pray that you'd meet those. I pray for Jerry and Beth, this couple that I met, and God, I just pray that you'd help them as well, help us to get another opportunity to meet them and to talk with them about the Lord, and I pray that their minds would be in a place where they could receive the Word of God. I sure would like to see them get saved too, and they need some help. Father, these were divine appointments. There's not a question in my mind that you put them where they were and me where I was, that they might be saved. So help with that. Lincoln Foster talking about these people that he's meeting at the gym. That's a divine appointment. I pray that you'd help with that as well. And now, Lord, as we move into this study again, I pray that you'd help me to handle your word rightly, to divide it rightly. Your word is sometimes difficult, but I don't want to be careless with it. A lot of needs that are represented here tonight. I pray that you'd meet everyone and speak to our hearts. May Christ be lifted up tonight. Of course, in his name we ask these things. Amen. We begin, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, and we see the importance of motives. The importance of motives. Verse 1, he arose from thence and cometh into the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan, And the people resorted unto him again, and as he was wont, he taught them again. Now listen to verse 2 And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? The importance of motives. I'm sure there's more than this, but I think there's two likely motives behind their question. And by the way, whatever their motives were, they were insincere and they were impure. They had no desire to come to a knowledge of the truth. They had impure motives, and we're going to see that. What were the motives of the Pharisees? Well, I think one motive might have been to undercut their rival's status. Now, what do I mean by that? Mark omits an interesting phrase that complements and broadens this. It's in Matthew 19. If you want to, hold your place in Mark and go to Matthew 19. In fact, it may be useful to just keep something marked there in Matthew 19 in case we go back. We'll see how far we get. Mark chapter, one, Mark chapter 10 verse 2 says, uh, The Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Look at what Matthew, in Matthew 19, verse 3, the same event. Look at what he, what he adds. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? For every cause. The Pharisees as you know were two different groups you had the um, well actually you had in the Sanhedrin you had the Pharisees versus the Sadducees and within the Pharisees you had two schools of of thought there were those that came from the more liberal-minded rabbi Hillel and those who came from the more conservative-minded rabbi Shammai sounds familiar doesn't it liberals conservatives and they got along about as well as the ones today do. There was strident disagreement between these two groups on any number of things, but that would include the issue of divorce. Those that came from Hillel believed that a man was allowed to divorce his wife for just about anything. Now, we're going to get into this more later. Later. But those from, the, from Shammai, they, they only thought it was allowed for, for major moral improprieties. And one in particular that we'll talk about from Deuteronomy 24. So whichever side Jesus came down on, if it was those of Hillel, those of Shammai, then the other side could look at them and say, see how wrong you are? The heretic agrees with you. The blasphemer agrees with you. I told you you were wrong. So I think there was that impure motive going on there. But I think more than that, they weren't just looking to undercut their rival status. They were looking to undermine, oh, there's Hillel and Shammai, by the way. They were looking to undermine Jesus' standing. With who? Well, how about with the politicians? If you notice where he is, you know where he is. He's in Herod's country, and if he comes out hard against divorce, like the Shammai people would, Herod might take notice of that, like he did with John the Baptist. And if they can get Herod to be his enemy, then that's 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 helpful to them. But what about the people? Not just the politicians, what about the people? If he's more lenient on this matter, then he would be going against his cousin John the Baptist, who was almost universally beloved. Ha, we got him, we trapped him. My point is this, their motives for these questions were nothing pure, nothing helpful. Now what do we take from that? The only right and proper motive for any biblical inquest must be the pursuit of truth. As we're studying the word of God, there's only one motive. What is the truth that you want me to know, Lord, and to live in my life? Put your helmets on. Anytime we approach the Bible regarding any subject for any reason other than the truth. We're no better than these Pharisees. And there's a whole lot of preachers just like me that have gone to their Bible trying to find something to back up what they already believe or something that'll prove that other preacher wrong or somebody that'll show them that I know more than they do. It happens all the time. Sometimes we look to the Word of God to find something to uphold what we already enjoy and hope that it teaches. Told you put your helmet on. Guilty. Remember, what should not form our doctrine, feelings, experience, and anecdotes and, and, and uh, exceptions? Only the pursuit of the truth of the Word of God. That's it. So, we see the importance of motives. And then in verse number three, we see the inquiry of the master. Verse number three, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? Jesus frequently used this technique, and it was very, very effective. I'll answer your question with a question. Man, don't you hate it when your teacher does that? What, what is this, you know, whatever subject it is, what, is it? Well, what do you think it is? Well, that's why I asked you. One that my teacher used to do to me all the time drove me crazy. How do you spell such and such? Go look at the dictionary. Well, if I can find it in the dictionary, I know how to spell it. But what Jesus did is he used this technique. It was an effective way to ward off an incorrect premise. See, when you you notice this, this happens a lot in political debate. Somebody will offer a question, and they're, they're meant to get you off subject, to get you off on a tangent, and ultimately make you look bad. And the way you bring them back is question them, put them on the defensive. By the way, it's a great technique in apologetics. And Jesus, of course, was and is the master of it. But then in verse 4, you know, we, we start out with the importance of motives and the inquiry of the master, and now in verse 4, we see the introduction of Moses. So hold your place here, and let's go to Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24. Okay, so... I'm going to read you Mark chapter 10, verse number 4. And they said Moses <clears throat> suffered or allowed to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. They're referring back directly to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. So let's read that. When a man has taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand. And send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement, poor girl, that's twice now, and giveth it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after that she is defiled, for that is abomination. Before the Lord, and we'll stop there. That's what they're referring to. And the Pharisees would, would latch on to that passage in this issue. Now, here's the key phrase in verse number one When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found, watch this, some uncleanness. In her. That's the key phrase. It's the point of contention between those of Hillel and, and those of Shammai. That, that phrase in the Hebrew, that, that, that some uncleanness, its literal meaning is a matter of nakedness. Oh, well, if, if she's unfaithful sexually, it, I don't think it can be that. And I'll tell you why. Because in Moses' day, under the law, if you committed adultery, if you were materially unfaithful, the penalty was death. It was death. So it must be something short of that. Whatever it was, it was central in nature, but not necessarily indicative of physical immorality. And so those of the school of Shammai, they limit it to something of a serious moral nature, something that rises to the level of infidelity, if not exactly that. But it's serious, and this is the only reason that you can be granted a bill of divorcement. That was Shammai. Now, Hillel, they were much broader in their interpretation. They broadened it to include anything that displeased the husband. Because they went back and they incorporated that first phrase, she find no favor in his eyes. Now, a resource that I recommend um, for studying these kind of things are books that are written by a guy named Alfred Alfred Edersheim. He was a Jew that came to Christ, had a really good knowledge of all things Jewish, Um, there's, he wrote one called the life and times of Jesus, the Messiah. And he also wrote one, I think it's called Jewish social customs, something like that. Um, if you'd like to see it, that you might get a copy. I'd be happy to show you mine. Um, but this is what he said. According to Alfred Edersheim, he said, this could include spinning in the street. Now, what is that? If I take it literally, if she's just spinning in the street, Okay, meaning she's not sober enough, not quiet enough, not mousy enough. Okay, well, some of y'all are already in trouble. <laughs> oh, it gets better. Familiary, familiar, familiar, f a m i l i a r l y, familiarly. I'm never going to be able to say that word. Talking with men. It's interesting. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. A lot of a lot of Muslim traditions and Muslim customs are very much akin to the Jews because they're all from that same region. And if you encounter a lady who's obviously Muslim and you say hello to her, there's a good chance she won't respond to you. Yeah. I've had that happen to me. Hey, how are you? Just look straight ahead. Okay. Have a good day. You know. Um, let's keep going. <laughs> Ill treating her husband's parents in his presence. I suppose that means you can treat him any way you want when he's not around. But, um, but ill treating her husband's parents in his presence. So Crystal's out. Um, no, my wife has been nothing but good to my mother. Brawling. Now, now the word brawling is interesting. It literally means speaking to her husband so loudly that the neighbors in the adjoining house could hear. Okay. A general bad reputation, the discovery of fraud before marriage, now this is my favorite, or burning a meal. This was the school of Hillel. Now we laugh about it, but this happened. Now, I want to give you some important notes about this allowance that Moses gave in Deuteronomy 24. You say, Andy, why are we going through all this? Just get to the text and tell us. Because we need this. We need to build this foundation so that when we get to the conclusion of it, you know, we, we have stuff to work off of. All right? Verses 1 through 3 are what's called a protasis. Everybody write that down. You're going to need that a lot in life. What is a protasis? That is a clause containing the conditional part of a conditional statement. So the first three verses are conditional. And then verse 4, that first part that we read, is called an apodosis. And that's a clause expressing the consequence of a conditional statement. So let's read these. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, that's a condition, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, that's a condition, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she's departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if there's another condition, the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to his wife. Now verse 4, here's the consequence. Her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord. So let's break that down. If a man finds his wife to be worthy of being divorced, okay, we'll grant you this bill of divorcement. But if you change your mind, sorry. She remarries and he dies. She's not available to you. You do this, it's done. These are the conditions and this is the consequence. And if you go through with it and bring her back to yourself again, it's an abomination. It brings sin into the land. It allowed for divorce, but in no case did it demand it. There is nothing in all of Scripture that says, if your spouse does this, you have to divorce them. Nowhere. Nowhere. Now this, I think, is what's most important to understand about Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. In that culture, men could initiate divorce, but there were very few occasions in which a woman could. Men ran the show on this thing. And what would happen is these men would divorce these women and they would be left with nothing. They were, they were nothing but property. And when Moses initiated this allowance, what he's doing is he's protecting women from being set aside and taken back at the whim of that man and not only that it gave them certain legal and even property protections this was not given because god approved of divorce and wanted man to do it the best way possible it was given because men were evil and god needed to protect these women that's why it was given okay so we've we've seen the importance of motives the inquiry of the master the instruction of moses the introduction of moses And now, verses 5 through 9, we see the instruction from the Master. Now, remember our template. God's ideal, man's real, and the Christ who heals. Remember that template. Verse 5. We're back in Mark chapter 10. And Jesus answered and said, for the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. That's man's real. That's where you are. We're dealing with this because of the hardness of your heart, man. Okay? But watch what Jesus does. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh, if they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Do you agree with me that verses 6 through 9 reveal God's ideal? Yeah. Now the Christ who heals comes later. We'll not get there this week, I don't think. jesus begins reminding them of god's ideal and what's interesting to me is his initial answer regarding divorce is to not speak of divorce at all but to focus on marriage you know what he's doing in verse number six but from the beginning of creation god made them male and female he's reminding them and us that god is creator and has every right to regulate how marriage is done Now, we'll get into this in more depth next week. But you understand that marriage and the family is an institution. There's three God-ordained institutions. And by far, the first and most, no, no, hear me out on this, the most critical is the family. More critical than church? Yes. Because the church is no stronger than its families. Government's a distant Third. The first institution was the home. God performed the first marriage. So it must matter to him. Jesus asserts that God's ideal has always been one man, one woman, for one lifetime. Now, get your helmets back on. I went to great lengths last week to say this, and I'm going to try and get it across tonight as well. I am keenly aware that a lot of good people who love God have been through divorce, and some of them are even in this church. I don't harbor any different feelings towards anyone that has been divorced than I do anyone who's been married to the same person their whole life. It does not enter into my thinking or my evaluation of anyone here or anywhere for that matter. And we're going to get into next week what the Bible does and doesn't allow. And we're going to dig into that. But we've got to be super careful that in an attempt to be compassionate and careful about this issue, that we don't make it clear the sanctity of marriage and that it is critical. And when we look for ways, and I don't think this is true of anybody in here, but there are some folks that are digging through Scripture, finding a loophole for them to leave their spouse. And that's wrong. That's wrong. And when we look for ways to circumvent something that is meant to be permanent, we weaken our resolve to maintain that permanence. The best way to avoid divorce is for both parties to never see it as an option. We have a rule in our home. We don't use the word. Even in joking, we don't. It's not an option. You say, But Andy, I've been through it. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And I wish that I could have been there to help you through that. I wish I could have done something to help you. And and God can take that and he can heal and he can bring you to the next level and he can, he can restore you. He can do all of those things. But we cannot relax this idea that God intends for marriage to be one man, one woman for one lifetime and it is worth fighting for. So that brings us to what we're going to get into next week, which is what I hope is the last message in this. We've seen the importance of motives, the inquiry of the Master, the introduction of Moses, instruction from the Master. And then we're going to look at verses 10 through 12, and we're going to see the intent of the message. We're going to look at Matthew 5, verses 31 32. Jesus touches on it there. We're going to look at what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to look into what's called the exception clause, Matthew nineteen nine. What am I talking about, the exception clause? You remember, uh, you remember what it says in, in, in Mark. In the house, his disciples asked him again the same matter, and he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another... Committeth adultery against her, and if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. And that seems to be pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Oh, but Matthew. When you read Matthew, see, look at what it says. I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication. That's the exception clause, or what's called the exception clause. All right, so what is that? What, what do we do with that? Mark doesn't even mention it. What do we do with that? He said, well, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Is it? Well, dig into that. What about infidelity? What about abandonment? What about abuse? Preacher, are you one of those preachers that says, if my husband's beaten me as senseless, that for the sake of the gospel I'm just supposed to stand there and take it? No, I am not. I don't believe there's anything in the Bible that expects a woman and her children to be in harm or I guess a man if it applies. So my but fellas I'm gonna tell you if your wife's beating you up you may ought to keep that to yourself. <laughs> but I'm just saying. No, you don't stay in harm's way. All right, what about separation because the Bible doesn't account for separation. That wasn't a part of the culture back then. Where does that I'll give you a little I'll give you a little freebie for next week i do think that sometimes there is some wisdom in a separation for the purpose of bringing that person back to the lord sometimes that's the only way you can get through to some hard-headed man all right you're gonna be by yourself for a while till you figure out what you're doing wrong now it's got to be for the purpose of restoration it needs to be a last resort but i think there's room for that Do we account for how Jewish marriages work? You you remember that it wasn't an engagement like we have. When you were betrothed, you were as good as married. In order to break off a betrothal, you had to be divorced to break off the betrothal. What conclusion should we draw? And then once we draw it, can we still have fellowship with one another if we're not in the same place? Absolutely. 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 So next week, verses ten through twelve, the intent of the message. So Andy, after next week's message, we are all going to know exactly what the Bible teaches about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Right? If you listen to me, you would know. Um, no, but here, here's here's what we here's what I always try to do. When when the Bible when the Bible gives us clarity and direct instruction, we, we take that and we run with it. And, when, and I'm not saying which is the case for this, but when it doesn't, I give you all the information you need to go home and ask the Holy Spirit to tell you what to do with it. I, I'm Listen, I'm no, to a lot of you look at me and I'm still a kid. I'm 47 years old now and I'm getting tired. And I, one thing that I've learned tires me out more than anything is trying to do the work of the Holy Spirit. So many of us fundamentalist preachers work hard to be the Holy Spirit in people's lives. I just refuse to do it. Here's what the Bible says, Lord, get them. Because even if I could do it, I'm not good at it. So we'll get into it and we'll look at these passages and we'll compare Scripture with Scripture and we'll put it all together and there we go.